0: If you have ever had heart issues or concerns in the past, it is likely that you may have had what is called an EKG. EKGs are helpful, I'm told, because they allow the physicians and the medical technicians to be able to see inside kind of your heart, to see what's going on under the surface where the eye can't see and what can't be visible on the outside. Last week, if you remember, we saw that Jesus mourned over the hard-heartedness of the Jews. In fact, with sadness, he exclaims in Luke 13, 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not? And you would not. Like what a tragic statement about the hard-heartedness of so many of the Jews of Jesus' day. Jesus would long to gather them together as the hen gathers her brood, and they would not. And so if this morning you are wondering, well, how in the world could these Pharisees, could these Jews and these religious teachers who heard Jesus teach and who saw him work so powerfully, how in the world could they not see who Jesus really was? Like, how could they not believe? Why would Jesus say of them they would not when there he was? If you've ever asked those kinds of questions, then our text this morning, I think, assists us in answering those questions. And in this way, I think Luke 14, 1 through 6 is almost like an EKG that helps us to see inside the heart of those who would believe not. So we see that our text begins with Jesus having dinner at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. We see that in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they, the Pharisees, were watching him carefully. Now we're not told why Jesus goes to the home of this Pharisee. R.C. Sproul writes that it was customary for a visiting rabbi to be invited over for dinner after a day of teaching in the synagogue. and Like an old school you know, country church might invite the visiting preacher home for Sunday dinner after church. That could be the reason that Jesus was invited over. It was simply the custom of the time. But given the language there in verse one that the Pharisees were watching him carefully, it seems more likely that they invited Jesus over to try to trap him. And Jesus had already stirred things up on the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath. So it could be that this was a trap. And the Pharisees could have been thinking to themselves, okay, I've got an idea. Let's invite Jesus over on the Sabbath Let's plant someone around the table or in the room who desperately needs to be healed. Let's bait Jesus and see then if Jesus will actually heal on the Sabbath. See if he'll break our Sabbath laws. Whatever their motivation, we know that their purpose was not neutral. They are watching him, but they're not watching him with admiration They're not watching him with respect. They're not watching him so that they might imitate him. They're watching him with suspicion. They're looking to find fault. In fact, the Greek word used there by Luke for watching is used in two other places in the Gospel of Luke. And both are occasions when the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. So they're not Jesus' fan club. This is significant, I think, for us to see. And this is part of this EKG that we want to understand this morning about a heart that would not receive Jesus, a heart that would not trust in Jesus, a heart that would be resistant to Jesus. Rather than considering the claims of Jesus, rather than listening to Jesus, rather than inviting Jesus into their home so that they might honestly and truthfully evaluate the merit of that which Jesus says, they invite Jesus over with suspicion. So one element of an EKG of those who would not trust in Jesus, who will not even today believe and trust in Jesus, is suspicion instead of consideration. Because that same attitude can manifest itself even today. Today. John Piper writes that one of the clearest indicators of a person's attitude towards Christ is their response to the Scriptures. When reading the Scriptures or hearing the Scriptures, do they respond with humble submission, willing to have Scripture shape the way we think, or do we respond with what Piper calls the yeah buts? Well, yeah, but we need to understand the ancient Semitic Near East cultures to really kind of put Jesus in his right context. We need to understand him as a historical person and pull that into light, even when that directly violates the clear teachings of Scripture. The yeah buts. But friends, a heart that has been made alive by the Spirit of God is a heart that will say, like David in Psalm 119, verse 159, Oh, how I love your testimonies. How I love your precepts. So do we have a heart of suspicion when we come to Scripture? Do we have a heart of suspicion when we hear the Word of God proclaimed or taught or counseled and from a pulpit maybe, or in a Sunday school class, or in a small group, or a women's Bible study, or a men's Bible study, or around the counseling table? like, Do we hear the Word of God and submit our lives and our thinking to it, or do we respond with a lot of suspicious yeah buts? Now, If, as Rebecca was reading this text this morning, you were thinking to yourself, well, that narrative sounds awful familiar. It's because this narrative is familiar. In fact, there is a lot that this narrative and Luke 13, 10 through 17, have in common. And if you're new here, we're making our way kind of line by line through the gospel of Luke. We've been here for a couple of years. We'll be here for probably another 18 months or so. You might be thinking, well, back in... Luke 13, 10 through 17, we have Jesus at a home. There's someone who needs to be healed. Jesus heals. The people are upset because all this happens on the Sabbath. There's a lot of similarities, and there are a lot of similarities. Both have the presence of a synagogue ruler. Both center around healing on the Sabbath. Both use the same verb, release, release for what Jesus does when he heals. Both include Jesus confronting the religious leaders for their concern of animals over human people, children of God. And yet here is Jesus once again, surrounded by these Pharisees who are not interested in considering what Jesus has to say. Their interest is in trapping Jesus and so they look on with suspicion. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, you remember, you might remember back in Luke chapter 7, which might seem like 12 years ago, Luke chapter 7, we learn that it was customary in, at the time for meals like this to be open to the public, meaning people from the public could like, come and could stand kind of around the outside in the courtyard, or they could stand around the table, and they could watch the meal as it happened. Now, we don't do that today. It would seem really awkward if... As you have your friends over and you're eating a meal together around the dinner table, people just kind of wander in and stand around the table and and just kind of watch and look over your shoulder, like that would be a little disconcerting, but not in Jesus' day. Like this was the custom of the time. So it could be that this sick man came in simply because he was wandering by and he happened to see that there was a meal going on and this was entertainment of the day. Just go in and see what happens. Or it could be that this man had heard something about Jesus, and he sought Jesus out, found out that he was at the home of this Pharisee, and so he went to this home so that he could see Jesus, maybe in hopes of being healed by Jesus, perhaps. Or it could be that this man was actually planted by the Pharisees. I think that has some merit, because if you notice in verse 3, it says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Am I missing some verses? Like, they haven't said anything to Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to them? It could be that Jesus, who knew their thoughts, who knew their intentions and their motivations, recognized that they had planted this man here so that they could try to trap Jesus, and Jesus responds to their ploy in verse 3. Either way, regardless of how this man got there, we are told that he had dropsy, dropsy. Dropsy, although it sounds like it would be one of the dwarfs from Snow White, right? Like dropsy. <laughs> it's actually, it was a dangerous and hopeless disease caused water to accumulate in different parts of the body. And those who suffered from dropsy would have an insatiable thirst. They just always want to drink more and more water. But unfortunately, it only made their situation more dire because the more they drank, the more they swelled as their body retained fluid and they were unable to pass it. And so knowing that this man is present, who is probably hopeless, Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the lawyers with a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The Pharisees and the religious leaders are probably thinking, wait a minute, time out. We invited you here so that we could ask you questions, right? Here you are asking us questions. And Jesus takes the offense, doesn't he? He knows the thoughts of these Pharisees. So he asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now what the Pharisees knew already and what we wouldn't know, but I'm about to tell you, is that it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Completely. There's not a single Old Testament law that prohibited healing or doing good to one's neighbor on the Sabbath. The law of Moses did not prohibit it, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Israel had by this point created all kinds of additional laws, fence laws that they put up so that no one would even get close to breaking the law of God. And so for example, while most rabbis agreed that life-saving measures on the Sabbath were okay, they disagreed about what could be defined as life-saving measures. So some would say, well, you can save a life if it's your own and it's in self-defense, if you're being attacked, that's okay. Other rabbis disagreed and said that you could not save a life even if it was your own and even if it was in self-defense because that constituted work on the Sabbath and the Sabbath was to be a day of complete rest. So here is Jesus in the home of this Pharisee baited by those who are trying to trap him, with a man standing in front of him whose outlook on life was probably incredibly bleak and incredibly hopeless. And Jesus cuts right through their plans and he cuts right to the heart by asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He knew that the pattern of the Pharisees had strayed far from what the law of God had dictated, from what the heart of God had communicated. And so what are the, law, what are the Pharisees and the lawyers to say, right? Like what are they going to do? If they say no. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They go beyond the law of Moses, which, as they knew, never prohibited healing on the Sabbath. And they were supposed to be the experts of the law. They knew the law. Well, we can't just openly lie. But if they said, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they contradicted generations of rabbinical teaching which told the people that it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that it was forbidden to do that kind of work on the Sabbath. And so what are they to say? They say nothing. Verse 4. But they remained silent. Then Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Maybe they say nothing because they know that no matter what they say, they'll be trapped. Maybe they say nothing because others had previously been humiliated by Jesus on this very same topic. But it is revealing of their heart, isn't it? In fact, it's another data point for us about the heart of those who would not receive Jesus, those who will not trust in Jesus. We see stubbornness. Rather than humility. Now this could have been the perfect opportunity for some of the Pharisees to stop for a moment and to think to themselves, okay, wait a minute. That is actually a good question. As much as we may not want to admit it, as much as we may want to run from this reality, this is actually a really good question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But we don't have any indication that that's actually what the Pharisees and the lawyers actually do. Instead, they're more concerned with maintaining their image, their reputation, than they were concerned with actually stopping to humbly reflect on this question. I mean, this question could have changed their outlook, but they would not. It's easy for us to spot the stubbornness of the Jews here and to miss our own stubbornness, our own sin of pride, our own love of reputation that oftentimes keeps us from learning from Christ. It's easy for us in our pride to forget that there actually is a biblical category for self-deception, or to put it another way, as we sang this morning, I once was lost in darkest night, but thought I knew the way. We can actually think that we are right. In our own intellect and in our own logic, think that we are right, but according to the truth of God, we can actually be wrong. It's easy for us to dismiss the things we read in Scripture if they sound outrageous or if they don't align with the way we've always believed, or if they contradict what we previously thought to be true about God. We can hear a doctrine and we can think, well, that can't possibly be true. The church I grew up in didn't teach that. The Sunday school teachers I used to have didn't believe that. Or we can read something in the Bible and we can think, well, I don't think that's scientifically possible. That can't be true. People can't really come back to life from the dead? But have we stopped to humbly examine the Bible? Have we stopped to humbly seek answers from the very words that God has given us in his book? Have we stopped to actually evaluate the claims and the teaching of Jesus? Something that these Pharisees would not do. I mean, isn't it far easier to simply dismiss the teachings of Jesus To dismiss the teachings of Scripture than to actually stop and to humbly consider what God has said. Especially when it means publicly changing course. When it means publicly saying, you know what, I used to think that this was true, but actually, according to God's word, it's not, and here's why I was wrong. Well, if we're looking for encouraging elements thus far in our text, one of them is that Jesus is not limited by anyone in this room. And praise the Lord. Like clearly, the Pharisees and the lawyers are hostile towards Jesus. They don't want this man to be healed, unless it's to trap Jesus. They don't really care about this man, as will become obvious in Jesus' words here in a moment. And we're not even told regarding this man if he actually believes Jesus or not, if he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, if he believes that Jesus can heal him. Yet Jesus heals him. I mean, you might remember on another Sabbath, an earlier Sabbath that Luke tells us about in Luke chapter four, Jesus enters a synagogue and he declares that the reign of God through the kingdom of God had now come through him that he had arrived on the scene to usher in the kingdom reign of God and that he was now here as God to do the work of God, to release the captives, to vanquish Satan, to bring health to the sick and life to the dead as Jesus proclaims in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. So Jesus is performing these signs, friends, not just to be nice, not just to be helpful, not just to be kind. He is performing these signs because his miracles demonstrate that he is the promised Messiah of God, that he is God, sent from God to do the work of God, to gather together a people as a hen gathers her brood. In the words of Luke 13, 34, And this is why Jesus is healing and exercising demons, and why he will raise the dead to show that he is the Christ. In fact, this is all part of what he told the Pharisees he would do in the text we looked at last week. Luke 13 32, Jesus said, Go and tell that fox, speaking of Herod, behold, I cast out demons. And perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Guess what he's doing? He's performing cures. He's demonstrating that he is the Christ and that neither Herod's threats nor the surveillance of the Pharisees will stop him. His mission is unstoppable. And so Luke tells us in verse four that he healed him. Again, verse four. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. I mean, don't you love how succinct that is? Here is a man who we don't know how long he has suffered with dropsy. We know that his condition is dire and dangerous, and we know that it's probably hopeless for him. There was no known cure in that day for dropsy, so he's thinking, "I may not have long to live. I don't know. Like, quality of life is terrible." And yet Luke says, "And Jesus healed him. It's almost as though Luke's purpose in writing is because he is convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is writing so that we may have certainty. As he said at the beginning of this book, that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the Messiah. So he heals this man as the Son of God god but rather than this healing resulting in the pharisees worshiping rather they reject him all the more which is another data point for us is if we're looking at this ekg of the hearts of those who would not receive jesus who would not repent and believe they chose rejection rather than worship In fact, this is, even today, the most important dividing line of all people everywhere. The most important dividing line is the dividing line that separates worshipers from suppressors, to use the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1. Those who either worship God as God or those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who exchange the glory of the immortal God for anything else. which should prompt us to stop, even as we were reminded this morning about the, the work of God through the Reformation. should stop us in our tracks this morning so that we might ask the question, am I embracing Jesus? Am I loving Jesus? Am I worshiping Jesus for who he rightly is? Or am I a truth suppressor? Am I rejecting Jesus? Billy was so helpful reminding us this morning that a gospel that is assumed is no gospel at all. What that means is so often we can think, well, all Christians understand the gospel. People who call themselves Christians understand the gospel. And So even if we don't use the word gospel, it's just assumed among churches and among Christians and among people. Or we think if we just attach the word gospel to anything and everything that that will provide clarity. And so we have gospel-centered this and gospel that. and gospel. I'm, I'm waiting for gospel mineral water, right? Like, show up at the store. There's all kinds of mineral water. Like, this is gospel mineral water. We think, okay, if we just attach the word gospel to it, we will be okay. But, friends, we should be very clear and very specific about what the gospel actually is. And so that there's no confusion, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that although we, as humanity, have chosen to reject God, have chosen to not honor God as the rightful God and creator of all things, and thus, rightly, we deserve eternal separation from God, God in unmerited kindness and love and in grace provided for us the very thing that we need by providing his own son, Jesus Christ, to come into our world fully God and fully man. And that Jesus lived without sin so that when he chose to willingly surrender his life and die on the cross, he was not dying for his sin, which would have been the case if he had sinned, But rather as a sinless sacrifice, he died for the sin of all who believe, all who by faith turn away from our unbelief, our idolatry of people and things and self and trust in Jesus Christ alone for reconciliation to the Father and for forgiveness of sin as our only hope in life and death. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ this morning as your only hope? As your only salvation? As the only way that you could be made right with the God who made you? God has provided salvation through the work of his Son, he has accomplished salvation through the work of his Son for all who believe. Would you trust in him today? Would you turn today? We've been praying this morning that God would open eyes, open hearts. Some would hear that gospel call from the Holy Spirit this morning and turn by faith and believe. And so Jesus heals this man and then Jesus sends him away. He could have sent him away to spare him the ridicule of the Pharisees. We're not told why. But we are told that Jesus is not done making his point to these Pharisees. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And so Jesus is showing them, isn't he, the inconsistency of their Sabbath keeping. He knows that if their son or even their ox falls into a well, even on the Sabbath day, they would hurry to get their ox or their son out of the well. They'd grab ropes and lanterns and all their neighbors that they could muster and like, come on, help us get my ox or get my child out of this well. And yet they fail to acknowledge That healing someone, that setting someone free, not just from a well, but from a disease that has claimed almost the life of this man entirely is no different from setting them free from a well, and in fact, may even be better. And again, as we encountered in chapter 13, these Pharisees, these religious leaders are prioritizing an animal over a human. Unless we think that that doesn't happen today, let's just stop and remember how commonly we will hear about saving rare species of animals, and at the same time, can be so okay with the killing of the unborn. So we can see what Jesus is doing here, can't you, Okay, Pharisees, if it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath because that's work, then what about getting your ox out of the well? Isn't that work too? And if you don't object to doing that kind of work, if it means setting your ox free, then why do you object to setting free your fellow human being? I mean, Jesus is kind of injecting here a bit of, you know a revelation, he's revealing to them a bit about their own self-interest. I mean, if it were their child or their ox, they wouldn't wait until the Sabbath was over, but Jesus says they would immediately pull them to safety. So what about the concern and the care that they should be manifesting for their fellow human being? Someone made in the image of God. The Sabbath was supposed to be about looking back and remembering God resting after his work of creating. The Sabbath was also supposed to be about resting and remembering that we belong to God through the work of Christ, a work we received as a gift through faith, not a work we accomplished through our merit. And the Sabbath is also about looking ahead to the final rest that will be ours when Jesus gloriously returns and we spend eternity with him in the rest of perfect peace. That's what the Sabbath is about. And so healing a man, setting free this man who has suffered, just as we saw in chapter 13, setting free this woman who has suffered is exactly what the Sabbath is about. It's about the glorious work of God to set free those who cannot set themselves free. That we might praise God and worship all the more. And yet the Pharisees missed it. And in the end, they are unable to answer Jesus. We see that in verse 6, and they could not reply to these things. Commentator David Garland writes, at first his fellow diners were silent. Now they are powerless to answer. Their pride is injured, maybe their anger might be aroused. And they can say nothing. I mean, that's sad, isn't it? That in their desire to silence Jesus, they came face to face with God in the flesh and they walked away hard-hearted. This is a warning to us as well about the subtle dangers of pride. About what happens when we fail to take seriously the identity and the teaching of Jesus It's a reminder that we all need the continual refinement that comes from time listening to Jesus. The refinement that comes from time listening to the words of God through Scripture. The time of refinement that comes as we gather with the people of God in all kinds of different venues and contexts that we might encourage one another and help one another and challenge one another and inspire one another. You see, the danger of hard-heartedness should prompt our continual pursuit of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the very drift that made the Reformation necessary. And tragically, these Pharisees don't see that. And I think this is another example of why, as we saw at the end of chapter 13 in verse 35, the temple will be left desolate because the Jews, influenced by their leaders, did not grasp the identity and the will of God in Jesus. And Daryl Bach helpfully writes, the leader's silence continues. Nothing has been learned. Nothing has been confessed. Despite a constant barrage of divine activity, their position has not changed. The passage confirms how strong sin's stubbornness can be. It shows how even after warnings about judgment and its consequences, God graciously still gives evidence of his presence. His grace still reveals itself. But closed eyes can never see the evidence of God's power. The division between Jesus and the religiosity remains And so does the question of which way we will choose if we want to know God. And this is the opposite response of what we would expect from those who had just heard in chapter 13, verse 35, that Jesus will come back and the people at his coming will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You would think that that would give them pause to evaluate But instead of honoring Jesus, they look at him with suspicion, looking for every reason that they can possibly find to discredit and disbelieve him. Brothers and sisters, may God keep us from doing the same. This whole text is is a reminder that Jesus is on a journey towards death. Death. Friends, Jesus's life will not end with high popularity in the admiration of the crowd. His life will end with widespread rejection and the following of only a few. And oh, that we might be reminded that our lives may look the same because of Christ. When Jesus himself said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, this is not a fun message or a popular message, but we should not be surprised when we are unpopular because we follow Jesus. I'm not sure why it is, but I think somewhere maybe in the last 150 years or so in the West because things were generally favorable towards Christianity we have maybe adopted a mindset that thinks that suffering means that we're doing something wrong. That unpopularity should be avoided because it's somehow alien to the Christian faith and message. But I would encourage you as you read over 2,000 years of church history to be reminded of how often Christians were ostracized. Christians were marginalized. Christians were abused or persecuted or pushed to the fringes of society or sometimes even killed for claiming the the cause of Christ. And while we pray and hope and work that that will not be the case in any culture and society around the world, we should be reminded that that very is very much is the reality of many Christians in lots of parts of the world right now. And it seems as increasingly in the days ahead, probably the path in our culture as well. The Bible says that we are aliens and strangers in this world. Our our home is not this world. Our home is in the world to come. And so our mission in the here and now is not to be angry at the Pharisees or to be angry at a culture who is hostile towards the Christian message. Our job now is to delight ourselves in the Lord and his word, to love and serve the body of Christ, the church, and to be faithful and compassionate witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world. Our job is to love our neighbor and to seek the good of those around us, especially their eternal good, that they would turn and trust in Jesus. They would not be like these Pharisees. That if they were to have an EKG done on their hearts... We would not find them to be true suppressors, but we would find them to be worshipers. Just as he would find that in our hearts as well. That we would not be like those who would not. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me, let's pray.